In conjunction with the 50th year anniversary of the Title IX legislation, welcome to North Florida Athletics' Talking Title IX series, where we interview current and former UNF student-athletes and staff on the influence of college athletics in their lives and the ongoing impact made by Title IX. Enjoy. We're back talking Title IX uh, conversations with Linda Hamilton, just a renowned name in collegiate um, national women's soccer in the United States. Uh, recently had some big news this past year and has probably gotten a lot of uh, requests for other interviews uh, after getting inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Just go into, obviously, there's a, uh, you know, the last 30 plus years of soccer for you, but go into the basics. Um, hometown, how you got started off in soccer, uh, and just kind of what's led up to now. Sure. Um, I'm the youngest of, of three kids. My dad was an athlete in college, played at uh, University of Southern Miss, was a tennis player there. And uh, my mom and dad met there. She also was a tennis player. So started out in a family that sports were always a part of it and um, grew up in New Orleans. And my brother, actually, my older brother had found soccer through a local club and being the youngest you get dragged to all your other siblings events and so I was at a practice and we walked we're walking home and I said I wanted to play and went home to tell mom she needed to sign me up and she responded with well girls don't play soccer and Johnny my brother jumped in and was like yes they do mom although ironically there were no girls teams at the club where we were going and I ended up signing up to be the only girl on the boys team, um, which um, I think was a great benefit for me moving forward in my career. And then uh, went on to play college soccer, was a four-time All-American, three times at NC State, once at uh, Carolina, won a couple of ACC championships, a national national championship, was part of the U.S. women's national team at the forefront of the program, played in the first World Cup where we won gold, got the first star to get that going, and uh, played in the second World Cup in Sweden where we got the bronze, and then too many knee injuries and not enough current things about nutrition and strength and conditioning, yeah. so... Felt like at the time, and at the time I was over the hill at 27 retiring, but uh, as you can see how far we've come in the near, in the current day, kit players are playing into their mid-30s. And, you know, I look back now, I'm like, dang it, I was just in my prime at that point. But, right. And it felt like I was about 150, so. Yeah, um, um, just going off a few articles, ended at 26, is that correct? Yeah. So. Yeah. Going back, you grew up in, was it in the New Orleans area? Yeah, Algiers. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you moved to the Geor- Georgia. Uh, Georgia. Um, right after my eighth grade graduation, and then my high school years were in Georgia, and that's where home was, home base from college at that point. And uh, my mom still lives in uh, Marietta or Roswell, and right next to each other. So, so for you at that time, was there any accessibility to watch soccer? Was there, you know, watch um, women's soccer at least, or was there any no, type I of, I mean, ever, coming yeah. up through the, and, and my teammates and I all talk about this a lot. My, um, 91ers and I, you know, we all 
I believe, I guess you'd have to truly fact check me, but my memory serves right. Every single one of us grew up initially playing on a boys team because there were no girls team in existence. And when you talk to us about, you know, who do we look up to in heroes? It was always obviously men's soccer players because that's the times you did get to see it was limited, but you knew the big names from, you know, Maradona and Pele and, and, you know, the big names. Yeah. Huge, uh, the international names. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we didn't have, there were no professional leagues at that point. And, uh, and on the women's game, you know, for that point, it was early of the national team. So, you know, we weren't the equal pay things is great full circle, but we weren't salaried. And it was basically you get called in and the honor of playing, but you're, you, you know, you're leaving a job where they could be paying your bills. So that's part of why too the youth, why we ended up not having a lot of players that stayed past their mid twenties. Um, you know, you weren't getting a salary from the national team and, if you weren't at work, you weren't getting a salary. <laughs> so yeah, finding a place to let you live for free and not have any money was, uh, was commonplace, which we all did it. But after a while, as you can imagine, it was less fun. Yeah. It's only so sustainable. You're kind of in a rock and a hard place there, especially just, you know, at that age, you're at a good time to get your foothold in whatever career you're right. trying to go to. Um, right. Obviously, North Carolina is, you know, it's a blue blood within a lot of sports and women's soccer is one of them. What was, you know, this is kind of, a, I guess, a good perspective maybe for current student athletes trying to get in college and whatnot. What was like the recruiting process like for somebody at that time getting to college? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there was a lot of similarities minus cell phones didn't exist yeah. and social media didn't exist. So similarities it was a much more face-to-face get to know you process um as recruits we went on our visits um so a little bit simpler time maybe maybe not for the coaches of the teams but you know I took all of my official visits before I committed and that happened regularly and people weren't committing their eighth grade year and ninth grade year you know I, I just talked to the top two recruits in the country at D1, they're both going to Texas. Um, and they both had a very similar story that they verbally committed in eighth grade, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I'm happy for them. Like, that's great. Except that I think in eighth grade, every time I went on a visit, I guess my point would be in my story, whatever school I just visited, I came home and that's where I was going. <laughs> And then I went on another one and then that's where I was going. So then by the end, I had all these really lovely experiences to then try to make my parents choose for me, which they were smart enough to refuse. And, yeah. uh, but I was actually making choices of schools that I visited and it was sort of on equal footing. And, um, you know, I, I think this generation of recruiting, although opportunities are exponentially better opportunities at D1, 2, 3, NAIA, junior college, and and uh, Division three. so many more opportunities. But, you know, I, I think 
they also are so limited. They don't play anything but soccer. And, you know, I grew up with tennis as a part of my background and, you know, working my way through the Hamilton family tennis ladder. And I believe fully that tennis was a huge factor in my success on the field. Um, even as a coach, just different, different aspects teaches you different things. So I, I think this generation has many great opportunities on that. I, I hope for all of them, if I could give some advice, you know, if you're a good player and a school wants you in your eighth grade year, they're probably going to want you in your ninth grade year, in your sophomore year, in your junior year. So I hope you can create an opportunity where you make it your timeline as opposed to a coach's timeline. And I, I think that's a tough place to be, but if a coach isn't willing to give you a chance to look at other schools and, um, you know, have a choice and, and maybe you don't choose them, but in the end, wouldn't that be best for the student? So I hope that they maybe somebody hears this and gives themselves a chance to, to make it their own timeline and, you know, do the things that make them happy because I, I do see a lot of kids coming at the next level that's all they've been playing for and wanting, but then they get there and they struggle to enjoy it mm -hmm. because it's been such a, such a grind. And obviously I'm still in the sport because I, I love it. I love everything about it. I just talked to you about working at camp in 105 degree temperatures right. four days in a row. And, um, you know, I think that it's important with all of this growth that you also still have to find a way that the love of the game gets maintained. In my day, there weren't those opportunities. So you just had to keep getting better. And if a team, you weren't good enough for that team, you had to get better. Mm -hmm. This generation, if you're not good enough, you just move to a team that's lesser. Right. And I, I think, I think those are all positives and negatives kind of what with growth and opportunity you know, it's hard for kids to get maybe the develop the de development they need to to be a better player because clubs are really focused on results. And you know, everybody's got this moving around and moving target, and and so I think for the the up and coming young players, it's really important that you still love the game. Why would you want to spend that much time in something that you didn't love? So mm -hmm. hopefully they'll they'll take that and um, allow themselves a chance to find the school that really is right for them right off the bat. Yeah. So going for you, you know, ended up at NC state and starting your career. What was, what was kind of your vision for yourself in the sport at that time? Yeah. I wanted to go to a school that was competitive, but also maybe to help create a legacy and become number one. And, um, maybe the challenge to, to knock the, the King at Carolina off a little bit, you know, the other problem in my day was there were only, I don't know the exact number, but I don't believe it could have been more than 50 division one programs in the whole country. Mm -hmm. I do know that only 12 teams at that point made the NCAA tournament. So you're talking about a very minimal. So there were, the top five or six schools, NC State was definitely up there. Um, but I wanted to try to go somewhere and help create a championship run and program to that. The The other flaw of my time was that 
once college was done, there was nowhere for you to play and train um, except Carolina at the time. And Anson was my coach on the national team. You know, you had some of the best alum in the world Mm -hmm. playing there and lots of my national team teammates. So, you know, for me, the transfer was less about playing time and (laughs) success and more about me thinking beyond then it was one of the very few options I had to play beyond college. And, uh, and fun fact, Mia Hamm and I worked at Eurosport. I saw that. Oh, yeah, that's crazy. Back in the day. So we were answering (laughs) the phones and of course no one knew, even then no one knew who she was on Mm -hmm. occasion. You'd get someone that you knew was a fan because they're like, Sunday Hamilton or Mia Ham, more likely Mia Ham. Yeah, you just pitch that name out there and you're like, oh, there's some context for me. I know that name. Yeah. Sometimes I would answer that I was Mia Ham just to see <laughs> if I could get that reaction. So. It's crazy to see that um, I was born in the 90s and, you know, kind of, I played youth soccer growing up, but was big into baseball, but still followed, you know, professional, uh, professional and national team soccer levels and was right there with the names, you know, like Tiffany Milbrett, Brandy Chastain, Mia Hamm, Brianna Scurry. Like those were names that I knew. And I, you know, he was like, wow, those were, that was kind of the peak time for me to remember like the, the excitement around it. Um, and you know, to see your name amongst those, it's kind of like, wow, I've also aged too, (laughs) you know, because you know, that was seemed like yesterday. Now Um, we're talking about Midge purse. Who's like 18. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And seeing some of these names, I was watching Thais, who, you know, for us as an alum, just got is playing for Orlando now and seeing some of the ages and it's just kind of blows you away. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, which at the same time is, you know, probably cool to see looking back, those names have kind of become historic names and you know, being a part of that is a special thing, I'm sure. Um, was it kind of, did it kind of feel when you're in college, maybe like a lonely experience trying to grasp getting to that next level. Cause I'm sure that wasn't super common with your classmates. Yeah. What was weird is they just didn't know. Like I've got high school friends now, obviously that were like at the time you would say, Hey, I'm leaving for China for two weeks to play soccer. (laughs) And they're like, what you're doing? What? And Mm -hmm. it, it just, they didn't know. Now at Carolina and in college, the good news was we were surrounded by each other. So we all knew and, um, you know, that that was a direct feeder to the national team at that point. There weren't scouts. There weren't, you know, it was mostly the the college arena. And then once you kind of made it, the opportunity to stay there because your name's in there. The harder part was finding a place to train where you could get games and played in. Um, which is why I hung out at a college place yeah. um, to be able to have that competitive environment. I think at the time, um, it's interesting, we were living it. So I, I guess somewhere in our minds, because I, I've, I've said this in some of my speeches too, we knew when we got an opportunity that there was going to be a Women's World Cup that we had to win. Um, we knew we had to win for the future. I say that to lead into though, but while we were doing it, there was a part of us too, that sometimes it doesn't feel like you're making history when you're in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were just trying to play, 
competitive soccer as a woman in an environment that didn't exist before. And, um, you know, we knew we wanted to lay a path that would be better that future generations wouldn't be working. And I, Brandon, all the Eurosport people, I love Eurosport, but that they wouldn't have to work at Eurosport to support their professional soccer habit. Um, Absolutely. uh, But, Also, I can say that. So I I guess it's sort of a weird dichotomy because I I think we knew that, but it didn't feel like we were making history either. What we knew is we had to be successful. Mm -hmm. And And, probably in the moment it was. Well, and then in the moment, of course, that fed our competitive spirit. Like we're not out there. I mean, the cool thing is, is I started naming off some of my teammates and it's still arguably the best players in the history of the game. Right. You know, you've got Michelle Akers and Karen mm-hmm. Guevara and April Heinrichs and Christine Lilly and Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and, you know, Joy Fawcett and Carla Overbeck. So make no mistake, it was not hard for us to want to win. Like that was sort of in our DNA. That was in our DNA every day at practice. I think we did recognize there's a historical impact too of us besides our competitive spirit being fed that we needed to win um, so that we could start this train rolling to a direction we wanted the future generations to, to have it better. You know, I, I don't know what would have happened, but I know we won in 1991 and we didn't do anything for two years after we won. Mm-hmm. What would it have been if we had lost? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a huge fall off potentially, you know. I mean, maybe they drop it. Maybe they don't do it. I mean, we won, and instead of growing us, they ignored us for two years. Mm -hmm. And that's why we got bronze in the 95 World Cup. Mm -hmm. Started some residencies very much just before the 95 World Cup. I mean, the first probably salaries that we got, which we're nowhere close to where they are. but you go, we knew we had the win to get it moving forward and we won and they still ignored us for two years. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. if we hadn't won? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. If you think about it when you're competing, that locks you up even more, but you don't because you're still playing soccer and you're, it's minute to minute. It's, you know, Correct. possession to possession when right. you're playing. You know, obviously when you slow down and look back on it, like I thought I would be more nervous than I was, you right. know, if you really thought of the big picture. That's right. um, you know, and that's the nature of sport too. And you'd ask every great competitor that I'm sure they would kind of right. feel the same, you know, like Steph yeah. Curry's not going to think about all those shots that he needed to hit after, you know, yeah. he is when he's, when it's over, you know, but not when he's right. doing it. Um, right. so f- I mean, for you, one of, yeah, one of my questions was, it seems like in terms of women's sports and opportunity in sports, and obviously with title nine, women's soccer is one of those sports that I think a lot of people would point to as one of the first ones that you know, really got the ball rolling and started to add some opportunities. Do you think that those teams in the nineties were a big part of that push? I definitely do. I think, um, you know, I I think it's, you don't know what you have until you see it too. Right. So up until then women didn't have those opportunities. And then everyone said, And even back in my day playing, you know, people were like, well, nobody wants to watch the women play. I'm like, that's not a true statement. They just don't have the opportunity. But I'm just telling you, if I could get 
a hundred strangers every time to come watch this team play, I will have a hundred new fans every time. It is girl next door, incredibly strong, competitive. I mean, it was just the entire making. And, you know, those were some of the early arguments of U.S. soccer and the fight we started for equal pay and that the argument was, well, nobody comes and watches. And our argument back was, well, you don't advertise it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you marketed it, I still suspect we would have gotten, you know, some fans, but they, you know, whatever reason at the time they were trying to focus on the men's team and getting them there. And they were ignoring mm-hmm. the women's team that was beating everybody in the world. Um, which, you know, my opinion is they could have done both. They had an opportunity to still help try to grow. But if you're going by what they banked on, they thought they were going to further the men's program and that bombed out. They probably missed an opportunity to really blow the women's team out of the water. And meanwhile, we just kept winning. Well, and at the end of the day, advertising started to cut you off but like advertising and marketing and, you know, TV and where that resources go, it is a lot of the times subjective too. And where those decisions are made, not necessarily always based on objective things. Um, For you, when you look back on when you were playing in the nineties, do you remember, you know, what the advertising was like, or if there was any or marketing or streaming or it was was minimal. Um, I mean, the games in the world cups would find a a home, you know, in our day, they weren't televised at all. Um, The Sweden, the 91 world cup in China and the Swedish world cup in 95, neither were televised at least live. They were maybe there's a station (laughs) I'm sure it was out of existence before you were even born that did air some of the 91 games called sports South. And we had it in Atlanta mm-hmm. and they aired games at like two and three in the morning. And they were, um, re- were they replays or where is they it were live? replays yeah. of the world cup mm-hmm. games. Um, and I had to obviously look through some video recently through the hall of fame induction for the national soccer hall of fame induction. <laughs> In that first game, I'm like, oh, my God, there's no HD. Like, it was hard to even tell the players apart, and they were my teammates Um, because they were like, try to find some of the plays. I'm like, I think that's me, but it could be these other five players. Like, it's hard to tell. Oh, sure. Um, So, I mean, I think just listen. I think some of the issue is worldwide too. I mean, it doesn't go FIFA wouldn't call our 1991 a women's world cup at the initial inauguration of it. They called it the M&M Mars cup. Oh, I know they that. only retroactively named it because it was a world cup, but they didn't, you know, it's FIFA. And we don't know if women are going to sell. So yeah. they initially called it the M&M Mars cup through the sponsor, obviously. Um, and wouldn't even recognize, I mean, they recognized it, but wouldn't call it a World Cup until after it happened and maybe a little bit five or six years later. And the next World Cup was called a World Cup. But, you know, so I, I understand and I agree. I mean, you know, at the time, women's sports, 
you know, you had women's tennis in the professional ranks, but even women's golf wasn't getting much air. The only mm-hmm. real women's sports getting a lot of airtime was women's tennis and the grand slams. Yep. Um, and even the WNBA. Right. It hadn't back, even back, really. Back then. Right. It was Lisa Leslie kind of those right, late, late you, 90s, you know, if anything. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the, the access to it was very limited. Um, plus the willingness of putting it on the big screen, for lack of a better mm-hmm. way. Um, which does go back to the why we knew constantly, even the, the players that inherited the national team responsibility, they knew they had to win. Mm-hmm. We just knew we had to keep winning because at some point we're going to get the notice. If As long as you keep – Americans love teams that win. As long mm-hmm. as we can keep winning, eventually they'll have to go. And somewhere along the lines of two World Cups out of three and first two Olympics or three Olympic gold medals out of three, suddenly everybody knows the women's team players better than the men. Right. And, and, and like now a lot the of women's games sell out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those names are, are just as well known too, especially at the national level. Um, and part of this goes, it's interesting how it all kind of ties together is the internet at the time too. Like, you know, there's a Sorry. lot of games that you can watch now at the college level and pro level, of course, that it's web-based it's via the right. internet and it kind of sets an even playing field at that point. But in the nineties, it was, you were either on the ESPN or, you know, cable, or you were on ABC or CBS or NBC. And if you, you know, that's a limited, very limited option. And it's so easy to get lost. And at that point, yeah, the only way would to be record it and then save it and play it when there's nothing else being televised. And that, that plays a huge part. Yeah. On a physical cassette. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, On a physical cassette that you're somebody else taped over. Right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that those little things add up and technology comes into play. That changes. Obviously, that's that's completely changed your current job, obviously, um, in terms of what you can see of, of recruits, but also what recruits can see of the colleges they want to go to, right. the players they look up to, the role models that they do and don't have, because, you know, you're limited to seeing, oh, I saw, you know, Serena Williams and Venus one time when she was when they were coming up in the late 90s when they're on NBC for the final you know the semis and the finals that was it it wasn't like ESPN was like they do now you can see the first round second round third round fourth round you can see all of them of the grand slams you know and all that stuff is definitely I'm sure played a played a part in it um yeah and opportunities and clubs all of that growing mm -hmm. so now you have dads yeah that care about women's soccer. You have brothers that care. And it, it, it's not just about women. It's, it's about the sport, but it, it takes allies on all sides of it too, to grow it. And now you've got, you know, dads with three daughters and they want their daughters to have opportunities where they're, if they were sons, they would have already had these. So during that time, you've got, a mix of people it's sort of a swell and a growth and you know a little government help by passing a mm-hmm. law that talks about at least equal representation or opportunities in title nine that those sports need to be offered and listen it it doesn't get lost on me too that 
there were men's sports that were lost Mm -hmm. during this. I mean, I know wrestling was a big college sport that was a victim as you were adding women's soccer, wrestling, gymnastics was another one, I think for men that was, you know, but the difference is too, because those, there's always been so many more opportunities for young men to play multiple different kinds of sports. So, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever you're trying to make that change, growing one side, there are going to be, you know, assuming you want to keep football and that's the real rough. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That changes the game. There's no equivalent, you know, men's and women's soccer equate. And I don't agree that men's baseball or baseball and softball are, but at least it's two genders, two sports, Mm -hmm. men's and women's lacrosse, but you've got football of 120 players and you would need five women's teams. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the thing. We were both work in college sports and you understand that working internally, but obviously explaining that to somebody outside right. of the game, it's, it's kind of mind blowing when you think about it, the amount that football will change, you know, and has right. an impact on the other sports. Right. And, and both good and bad too. If yeah. the football team's doing well, mm-hmm. it's great. If they're not, it, you know, you start feeling like, that's yeah. a lot of money going there. And, <laughs> you know, and I, I think I'm not, you know, I think that's just the issue of a sport that has, you know, 90 rostered players and 120 mm-hmm. on a roster, mm-hmm. you know, that with red shirting and all of those other things. So, you know, what the other thing I think people don't always understand about title nine is it's not it's not about sports directly that right. you have, to have an equal number of male sports and participants in women's sports that it's all related to the school's demographic and the percentage of a school's population and how that relates. Um, you know, it, it's not quite as black and white, like, Hey, there's 150 men athletes. There should be 150 female athletes. It doesn't work quite like that. As with anything, really, uh, especially legislation. Um, Yeah, and it's gotten stretched to really kind of seem like it's exclusively to do with athletics, um, of course, because we have concrete sports teams and their numbers and people involved. Um, For you at the time when you were playing in the 90s, was there a moment that you kind of look back on that was like, you kind of felt like maybe some history was being made specifically? It was like that felt special. I mean, obviously it's going to be cliche, but I mean, I just won the first ever women's world cup. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to bypass that moment. Um, Being the first ever champions of an event that is a world event um, and representing my country that, that, I mean, that, that is obviously the, the culmination. I think, uh, for me personally, I mean, I, I think, and I will say a seminal moment for us soccer to make a decision when we got bronze in the second world cup, mm-hmm. um, have to make some choices on, okay. Ignoring the team after they got a gold for two years yeah, and then barely putting them together, you know, maybe that's not a great formula to have a double win. Um, yeah. And obviously the way this, you know, and, and the involvement of the 
national team where we're hosting our own tournaments and we used to go to tournaments like the Algarve cup. And now we're hosting the she believes cup and bringing the best teams to us and, you know, really taking a hold of our position in the world of soccer and soccer and the women's, but now there's professional leagues in the U S and Italy and Spain and, mm-hmm. you know, obviously England and, J- J- you know, Japan, China, um, the Netherlands. So, mm-hmm. you know, these opportunities, it's not just a microcosm in the United States and some of those professional leagues, it used to be that the NWSL was the best in the world. And now lots of our national team players are being pulled to the European league. So for me, I'm not trying to get into American players staying here. I just love that, you know, in my day you had about four choices of where you could go and play and it was not well supported. And today you've probably got 30 mm-hmm. and it is very well supported. And we're starting to make inroads where, you know, and I think soccer gets to be one of the things, I mean, I, I always talk about it. It's a genderless sport. It, mm-hmm. It's the only sport that there's not one difference in the game. The rules don't change. The ball's the same size. The field's the same size. The time's the same size. Except in the first World Cup, they made it 40-minute halves. Oh, really? Took five you minutes know, off? Uh-huh. You want to know why? Why is that? That extra five minutes was going to be really tough for the women to manage physically. Yeah, that, that's a huge five minute five minute uh, addition there. Not not like the games are. That also than got practice. changed quickly for World Cup number two. But isn't that funny? Fun fact again, FIFA yeah. and its wisdom. So, you know, I, I think uh, having all of these opportunities and to see the window that I get to see through now, it it it's there. I think it's requiring the players, though, to start, again, not just check a box. I mean, I still think you have to have a great love for the game. And if you want to – all this is done is taking the percentage of us that used to be able to play professionally, which was very, very small. It's always very small. But because the opportunities were very small, there's a very few of us that could do it. That's expanded exponentially. Mm-hmm. If you put the time and work in, there are places for you to be able to go now. Yeah, your margin for error when you were playing was, you know, is and not only margin for error is competitively, but in f- terms of putting yourself out there, maybe making that connection that you need. It's, you know, it's they're physical. You got to probably do them in person. You got to do it yeah. calling somebody on a landline. You can't text them or DM them even. You can't send them a video. You know, right. like you have to really show up if there's a tryout, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it, everything is evolved. Everything has changed. And I'm sure for you as a coach now coaching at the collegiate level, you can communicate that. And maybe some of your players ask you those questions. I'm not sure. Um, but it's probably definitely changed your perspective on the current model. Um, a uh, lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and just, <laughs> I was talking to Cam Brooks, one of uh, Texas's outstanding. She's a defender that I would like to believe we'll see her name and and some lights in the near future. She'll be going into her senior year. But I was like, she because I went to school with Ange, her coach. She's like, 
Linda, tell me some stories about Andrew. I'm like, not yet. Like, you'll have to, those will be worth something a little bit more during your season. I said, I will tell you some stories of the wild, wild west when we were in college. Yeah. Nobody cared about safety, apparently, because it didn't even occur. But we drove the team vans to away games, <laughs> we being the players. It was like your rite of passage. Juniors and seniors could drive the vans. What? Who? I have to take a van test now to be able to drive a golf cart on my campus. But don't worry. In our day, we were. Yeah. So so much less monitoring. Yeah. You should have seen her face. She's like, are you? I feel like you're lying. I'm like, I could see why you would think that. But I'm not. Like, it just was commonplace. Well, and especially when you think about, you know, schools of that caliber too, that's even more far flung now at at today's age. It's just, it's really hard to get your brain around it. Well, they're flying, they're flying private plane. They're at Texas. They're flying private planes. I'm like, no, we had like five vans carpooling between NC State, Duke, UNC. We'd drive a couple hours away to some others. She was like, so i mean it's funny when you think about it because it does sort of sound like (laughs) you're making a joke but or that nobody even cared it just wasn't as we evolve things became more important (laughs) to start regulating yeah it was almost Um, just um like subconscious like it was it was at something was or wasn't a priority whether because there just wasn't enough time to think about it or it yeah wasn't i just, think it just yeah. we're all in our you know 18 to 22 so you're mm-hmm. definitely well over the age of 16 you're right adult, got your license you know got your fine. license yeah. and you know wasn't really you know i suspect somewhere there was an accident that brought it to someone's attention like oh yeah we probably ought to look at that policy. <laughs> yeah, it's usually how it goes in human existence, right? There's some accident along the line that makes you revisit that something. You to pause and go, oh, yeah. I see this as a problem this. today. Yeah, there was no reason to think about this before, but I think we have to now to cover ourselves. Yeah. Um, getting into college coaching, what you know was that something that you thought you might do when you were finishing up playing career and what was that experience like trying to transition into it yeah i wasn't exactly sure but i'm grateful um to anson dorrance who while i was still a player talked to me we and you know in our day in order to stay fit you would work camps soccer camps all summer long and you would coach and train in the times you weren't with the kids so that you could stay fit and make a little money And, you know, through working uh, some of those camps, he was, and he's always, I mean, you know, he's always furthering the game, but I I remember the conversation and he said, you know, Hamilton, I think let's go get your coast. You should go get your B license for us soccer. And I thought that's so weird. I'm like a junior in college. Like I wouldn't have even thought of it. And he's like, there's no age limit you know, you're on the national team and I think you may as well do it. If coaching's in your future, great. If it's not in your future, great. It's still. And so I was like, he's like, you may as well do it while you've got time. And I thought, okay. Mm -hmm. So I went through and, you know, by the time I graduated, had my A license, which also helped my game. Um, And I don't think you'll find any player 
that did their coaching licensing during their playing time that wouldn't tell you it helped their game as a player. Um, it just sort of gave me a different perspective too and improved my game as a player, which, you know, Anson knew that I'm sure, but you know, it also served that purpose. So then once I was done with the national team, I, I did put my hat in the ring of normal business office and hours and, I did fine, but a few years in, I missed being outside and doing that. So it just allowed me an opportunity to go back into the to the college game. And I've coached at D1 and a um, couple of different places at D1. But, you know, of recent, I've really enjoyed the, the Division three model of the academic money being the priority for the players. And they don't have athletic scholarship mm-hmm. dollars across the board. So... You know, I like that the kids being incentivized for all the work they've put in the classroom and they choose to come out to practice every day and give everything they have to play for me. So I really like that model. Yeah. So, you know, obviously stop Old Dominion, North Florida, um, you know, Hofstra, Illinois no. College. Yeah. yeah. Hofstra, you know, and now um, Southwestern. Uh, what's that? variety of college experience done to you know change and mold your perspective as, as a coach yeah I think it just gives you a wealth of experience and all the schools are different and you know kind of like I said to you I, I hope for kids that they go on several visits and find several schools that they like because every school has its own personality and some schools fit some kids better than others, but you don't really know till you get a feel on the campus. But I, I think just having um, a wealth of experience uh, at each stop, you always learn from from both the people you work with and the people you're coaching. And, um, you know, I, I think it just makes me appreciate the moments where things are going really well and everybody's enjoying. And I think that's it for me. It's the love of the game. I want my players to have a good time. I want us to be successful on the, on the field, but also in particular in the classroom. And, you know, I I think that the different schools have given me a wealth of experience to help navigate with the kids as they come for advice that, you know, I've, I've coached at all levels. I've seen all levels and I have a lot of players that are certainly talented enough to play at division one, but you know, they want to be a doctor and they don't want to be told to change their major or that nursing, they, they can't get that done in time. And, you know, I, I think that, that, that they want to study abroad and, and have that experience. So those are the kids I've enjoyed getting to know and helping them navigate that there is life beyond Mm-hmm. the soccer field and hopefully my school is setting them up for that success not just during their time here on the field but during their time for the rest of their lives off the field yeah and I think you know for student athletes that are coming up and trying to find out their career and the ones that are interested in athletics may not always see it as it is a job that gives an opportunity to kind of shape students and young adults into um, you know their careers into other areas of life to be well-rounded and all the, it's a platform that doesn't exist a lot of jobs. Correct. Um, and I played at the division three level too. And it was that case where I had teammates that would <laughs> disappear for a semester because they were studying abroad and they would miss 
30, 40 practices as a result. And um, it's a different mindset and it's a different, it's a different life to live. Um, but there are also amazing athletes. We had a conference player of the year in the A-Sun for baseball last year, and he was a grad transfer and he played four years of division three before coming to division one and ended up being the player of the year, right. you know? So it is, um, it is not always seen that way. And I'm sure you've even been asked too. It's like, Hey, why did you go from division one level to coach at the division three level? And those would be your answers. Absolutely. I'm assuming. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, I could coach anywhere, mm-hmm. um, but I like, I like that. And I had a kid that was a two sport all American. Yeah. She was tennis and goalkeeper. She was the best goalkeeper in division three. She would have any division one that I know would have killed to have her in their goal, mm-hmm. but she was a stud tennis player too, which I think is also why she was a great goalkeeper. Um, in the fall, this is also to tell you how good she was in the fall. She was all soccer. She didn't touch a tennis racket. It wasn't like she kept yeah. she didn't touch it. <laughs> she goes in the spring, beats the crap out of everybody, having not touched a ball or a racket for six months. And even there doesn't touch a soccer ball for those six yeah. months yeah. comes back out. And every coach that I play against hates me because she's on my team, which is exactly where I want to be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think those are different opportunities. Look, every, for me, I think the world changed somewhere in there. Like I said, I think all of this opportunity is great. But I think for me, the method and the athletic scholarship um, side of things for me muddied, muddied the waters a little bit. This generation saw scholarship as their reward or they were entitled to that. My generation was just happy to have a place to play. And so, you know, I I had a lot of players having conversations with me about how to get more scholarship and not anything about how they could be better students, better teammates, better players. Mm -hmm. It became solely about the money and I didn't love that. So I chose a place where uh, an right. arena where I don't have to have those conversations. You're either smart enough and good enough to get into Southwestern or you're not. Once you, we know you're good enough to get in and smart enough to get in school. Yes. Can I see if you're smart, good enough to play on my team? But, you know, I'm not, I'm not having conversations with kids that feel like they're entitled to more athletic scholarships without doing any extra work or doing anything to deserve it. So I enjoy that. I enjoy that in another month, I got to call a kid doctor that just graduated and finishing up her fourth year of med school. And um, I look forward to that moment Mm -hmm. immensely. And, you know, the kid that got a full ride to law school out at, in California. And uh, I just think, and they've chosen to come every day. That's the part I like that every day they choose to show up to practice for me. Mm -hmm. It's their time. And that time, I mean it time is maybe one of the most valuable commodities we have as a human in general. Mm -hmm. And Mm they're choosing to spend some hours of their day. That is their time to come and better themselves at a sport just because they're not ready to give up their last four years of competitiveness Mm -hmm. going off as a, you know, perspective as a, as a coach and also as a former um, collegiate student athlete, what kind of advice would you give 
um, uh, you know, incoming student athletes and current student athletes? Yeah, I think for me, I think, you know, one for the, for the kids in high school, like really focus on your grades. Um, because it's something that can shut a door for you, but nobody's ever telling a kid that's too good of grades to get into my school or you're too smart. So, you know, don't, don't eliminate choices because you don't have the grades. Um, so really always make academics your priority. And then, you know, for me, choose a school that you will be happy as cliche as it sounds with or without your athletics. And that's always hard to do, but it's the nature of the sport and you have to choose a school too with or without the coach that's there. Cause sometimes, sometimes coaches leave of their own choice. Sometimes coaches leave not on their own choice, but you know, you've got to choose the school that really fits you. And I think that gets hard um, when you start adding that pressure and people and clubs and all, but, but this is a, if you want to play soccer in college in particular, it, it should be because you love it and it should be for all those right reasons and not just for scholarship dollars. Um, I think you will have a, a difficult time enjoying it if it's just on scholarship dollars and the school isn't right. And the style of play doesn't fit you or the style of the coach. So I hope that, you know, they, they can take time to, to decide and, you know, listen, the transfer portal as an advocate for freedom of choice for players all the time, I I say, yes, I think players should always have freedom of choice, but I think it should not be used as well. I'll just choose this and then I can move around. And, And I think that opens up those opportunities where maybe players aren't taking the right amount of time to really choose the right fit first um, because they know they have that as an option at the end. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think it's important to choose a place that you're going to be happy. And, and I, I think you have to include all of it socially, Mm -hmm. athletically, academically, geographically, Mm -hmm. Um, those should all be factors. And I think the current generation gets too caught up in their phone and doesn't really value some of those factors so they don't really know how to weigh them into it but if they could take the time go on the visits meet the coaches meet the teams watch the teams play you can make those decisions a little better for what's best for you not that a coach is pressuring you to make a decision Mm -hmm. anything else that you know i've kept you about an hour now but anything else that you want to add or interject based on maybe some of those questions that I had thrown out to you? No, I, I, you know, I, I think, I think it's great to see, be alive at a time where you can see so much vast change happen over time is a weird thing. It feels like a long time, but also feels like not very long at all for her, some immense changes. So I just think it's, it's a great time to be aware of, of the opportunities we all have and, and to make the most of those opportunities so that we can continue to lay groundwork for generations to come, that it's, it's better for them. 
Great. Well, thanks for making time, Linda. I know that you came highly recommended uh, as somebody to talk to that's come through North Florida. Uh, thank special shout out to Nancy Miller for helping <laughs> set the interview up. So yeah. uh, if you want to shoot her a text, so I appreciate it. Uh, enjoyed the talk um, and have a good rest of your summer.